Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning? That's a different sound. We've been in chapter 10 for a while. I look out and see Jim Hedrick holding his little granddaughter, our son and granddaughter. And I want you to know my daughter Stephanie is here. Stephanie. Stephanie, would you stand? I want everybody to see you. Come on. Let's give Stephanie a hand. <laughs> oh, how we miss them. Now, you know, if Stephanie's in here, Holland is just right over there. If y'all quit listening to me this morning, I'm going to quit and go over and play with her. So just, no, I've had the best time with her. Man, she sat in my lap for three hours the other night. She wouldn't do that. When she left, she was too squirmy. Boy, all of a sudden, something's changed. And we're just enjoying them being with us. Oh, yes, the message. Anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're just now getting into it. And the message today is going to be called, I'm going to call it, Respecting God's Order, part one. And you know what that means. It's going to be a while before we develop this one. But we'll get into it, I think, far enough today that will quicken your appetite for wanting to read the chapter ahead of me and really glean the great things that are here. Respecting God's Order. Do you realize when we live submitted lives as the Corinthians were not living, they were attached to men and everything else other than Christ. But when you attach yourself to Christ and surrender to him, God so changes you in your perspective that one of the things that comes out not only is a love that is sensitive to others that we'll talk about in a moment, but also is a deep respect for the design and the order with which God has set things up in your life. A deep, deep respect. You can never get somebody to respect the order until that person respects God enough to surrender to him. It starts there. Paul's context for the last three chapters, and I know you know this so well, it's like a broken record. Since chapter 8 through chapter 10, for three chapters there, he dealt with denying yourself for the sake of others. It all started in chapter 8 when they rose, brought, brought the question to him that whether or not they should eat meat sacrificed to idols. The problem was, was not in those who didn't understand. The problem was with those who did understand. There were those in the group that had been taught by Paul, that had been taught by Apollos. We'll see later on they'd held to the teachings of the Apostle Paul and they understood their position in Christ eternally before God. They knew that. They knew that nothing could threaten that position. They knew that eating meat sacrificed to idols didn't mean a thing. Wasn't this thing as an idol anyway. And the meat sacrificed to it, make mine medium well, give me a big piece. I mean, they didn't care. It didn't bother them. Problem was, there were some weaker brothers around them that really struggled. These weaker brothers, when they were either offered the meat 
or when they would eat it themselves, they would be defiled. Or when they'd watch a stronger brother uh, eat that meat, they would be defiled in their conscience. The Apostle Paul is really reprimanding the ones who understand. He's reprimanding man, the stronger ones. He's trying to say to them, you understand grace, but you're not living up under grace. You're not willing to let grace within you, the person of Christ within you, you're not willing to let him restrain you from the privileges that you have under grace. And that sensitivity to others is something only God can produce. You see, the meat that was sold in the market was 90% meat that was sacrificed to idols. When you'd be asked to a feast or when you'd be asked to some type of celebration, 99.9% of that meat usually was meat sacrificed to idols. And so it was a very difficult situation, a gray area, if you please. And Paul is showing the overwhelming principle that when you're surrendered to God, then love can mix in with what you know. And if it's just what you know, that's going to break your brother. But if love is mixed in with it, which is the fruit of the Spirit of God, that makes you sensitive to your brother. You see, that love affects your decisions. Now, in chapter 8, Paul said it's affected my decisions. You know, actually, there was no choice to be made by Paul. If Paul was ever in the presence of a weaker brother and meat sacrificed to idols was given to him and he knew it, Paul would lay his fork down, push his plate back, and would never touch that meat. He says in verse 13 of chapter 8, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, and the food meaning food sacrificed to idols, I will never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. The choice was already made. You see, that's what God's love in us does. It causes us to be willing to lay down our privilege for the sake of a weaker brother who doesn't understand that very privilege, who has that privilege in Christ but doesn't realize it. Well, that love affects our decisions. And that love that only God can produce that softens us and sensitizes us to others affects our discipline of our life. That's what affect Paul's, affected Paul's life. He says in chapter nine how that this love motivated him and how that it caused him to live a certain way. And he says in verse 26 of chapter nine, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself might be, should be disqualified. And that being disqualified does in no way mean losing your salvation. That's a terrible hermeneutic of that passage. What he's talking about is usability in the kingdom. And he says, I don't want to be in the game and experiencing what got, what's going on out here and then be put back on the bench. It's the worst thing in the world to be taken out of the game and put back on the bench. I don't want to be disqualified. And then he warns the Corinthian church and he says, if you keep on living like you're living, you're, like, you're living just like Israel and Israel was disqualified. As a matter of fact, he, he cites the, the great experiences of Israel in chapter 10, how they came out of Egypt and how they experienced the protection and the delivering power of God, and then how they went into the wilderness and experienced the provision of God, but how only two of them out of that whole generation got to go over into Canaan. Isn't it amazing how you hear the songs and people think that Canaan is heaven? Do you realize that warfare started in Canaan? You think there's gonna be warfare in heaven? <laughs> and Canaan is, is a picture of the fullness of all that God wants you to have. It's a beautiful picture of coming out of that fleshly living and coming into that spiritual dimension of what God has for you. But Israel was disqualified. Only two of them got to go in. God was not pleased with their lifestyle. 
And so what he's saying to the Corinthian church is, guys, don't you understand? This weaker brother situation is important to you. It shows whether or not you're living sensitive to Christ or whether or not you're living wrapped up with yourself. And if you're living wrapped up with yourself, you're gonna be disqualified. You're gonna miss out on all the joy and the fullness of what God could offer to you. And then he says in verse 31 of chapter 10, as he closes out on this question that's been asked him, he says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And you know what that means? The glory of God means the recognition of God. In other words, whatever you do, make sure that you're so dead to yourself that Christ might be manifested in and through your life. Glorified means to be seen in you, to be made manifest in you, to have the proper estimate of, of worthiness in your life. He can be seen that he is your life. And so live, do everything you do to the glory of God. Now chapter 11 Paul's going to shift gear. He comes out of that question starting in chapter 8, going through the last verse of chapter 10. In chapter 7, he dealt with marriages, divorce, remarriage. And now he's coming to another question, a question that's going to concern the role of women. And I want you to be very careful to understand the way he approaches this question. It's interesting. It's not explicit as to exactly what the question was very implicit as to what was going around and what the question probably was that was asked of Paul. Well, let's begin. And the first thing we want to see today, he shows them a portrait of submission. And I want to say to you again, when you're surrendered to Christ, that is the first key. Then and only then can you respect his order, his design that he has for you. Now, the English word mime, do you know what the word mime means? It means to copy the manner or expression of another. The way a person does something is mimed by another. It is not just what someone does, but it's the way they go about doing it. It's exaggerated. You ever seen somebody, they get up and they can't say a word. Matter of fact, have you ever played the game charades? <laughs> It's been an old game, but always a fun game when you drag it out, it's when you run out of everything else to do. And it's always a fun time. Uh, Diana, bless her heart, has never gotten into the game of charades. Now, I love my wife. She gets so excited for both teams. I don't know why it is. And you know how it is. Each team writes down the things that they want the other team to have to get up and mimic or mime to be able to, to come up with the answer. <laughs> well, Diana, <laughs> knowing the answer, is so excited as she watches the other team that we were having a staff thing several years ago and Dinah jumps up and gives the other team the answer and just claps and she's so proud of herself. And we said, no, Dinah, you're on our team. Let them come up with it. Don't you jump up and tell them. But when you mime something, you exaggerate something. It's, it's not so much what you do, it's the manner in which you do it. That's very important and germane to a word that we're gonna see here in verse one of chapter 11, because the Greek word that the word mime comes from carries with it this idea. He says in verse one of chapter 11, be imitators of me, Paul says, just as I also am of Christ. I'm an imitator of Christ, you be an imitator of me. Now the word for imitators again is the word we get the word mime from. Now what is Paul saying? Is Paul saying do what I do? Yes, but he's really saying it's the manner in which he goes about his life. It's not necessarily just what he does. It's the way he goes about doing it. You say, how do you know that, Wayne? Well, look at the last phrase. Be imitators of me just as I 
also am of Christ. Now let me ask you a question. How in the world do you think Paul could imitate Christ? You tried to imitate Christ lately? Do we understand this morning that we cannot imitate Christ in the sense of living exactly the way he lived? How in the world we have been duped into thinking that? You wake up in the morning and say, I'm gonna love my brother. Christ loved his brother. And by 12 o'clock tomorrow, God's gonna put a brother in your life you didn't know existed and you're gonna say at one o'clock, God, I can't. And God's gonna say, I never said you could. But I live in you and always said I would. You cannot imitate the Lord Jesus Christ and live exactly the way he lived. There's no way. Now, in a sense, however, you can't. Now, this Understand what we're saying here. It's not just what someone does, it's the way that they lived. How did Christ live? I'll tell you how Christ lived. He lived in total submission to his Father. You see, what he's doing here is giving you a portrait of what submission's all about, what surrender's all about. The design that God has for each of us is to live absolutely, totally surrendered to, to Christ. And he exemplified that for us. In that respect, we can imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. Look over in John chapter 14 and verse 10. Very, very significant that we see this. To imitate Christ is not to go out and think you can live exactly like him, no. But to imitate him is the expression, it's the way you go about it, and it's the idea of living totally submitted to the will of the Father. John 14 and verse 10. It's so important to see this verse. Jesus says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. You see now, that's a beautiful picture of how we are to live. Jesus lived in such relationship to the Father that what he did was a reflex, a reflex of what the Father was doing through him. It was the Father working in him. In John 14 and verse 13, look what he goes on to say. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Remember, it's the Father working in him. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. So when you saw Jesus working, you're seeing the Father. When you see us imitating him, then you're looking at us and you're seeing us working, but you're seeing Christ. He says, you imitate me, live like I live. How do I live? I live like Christ lived. How did they live? They lived in submission to the will and the word of God. And that's what submission's all about. It starts right here. Now, these little bracelets that were brought up in our conference this past week, I've been really careful not bringing this up, but I think it's kind of good that it came up. It says, what would Jesus do? Now, hey, keep your bracelets and give them to others if it helps you, but make sure you understand you don't have a clue what he would do when it comes to the actual act, but you do have a clue what he would do when it comes to the attitude that he would surrender to the will of the Father. That's what we are dealing with. Charles Shelton wrote the book, In His Steps. Listen, I don't know where he's walking half the time, but he living in me will walk and carry me while he's doing it. We have got to understand this. That's the way you imitate Christ. You don't do what he did. You let him do what he wants to do through you. You just live in such connection to him, such surrender to him that he's glorified in you as the father was glorified in him. You see, that's the way we live. I like what Ron Lynch did this past week. I like Ron. He just really is a blessing to me. I've spoken with him in many conferences. (laughs) Of course, Bill always blesses me. Bill just takes the truth and drives it clean through your brain. But, But Ron, 
was talking about being like Michael Jordan. And I couldn't remember, I can't remember all the things he said. How many were here when you said it this past week? Yes, you know. And he's talking about how the McDonald's commercial says, I want to be like Mike, I want to be like Mike. Well, if I want to be like Mike, I'll go buy me a McDonald's burger because that's what Mike eats. I'll get me some Nike tennis shoes because that's what Mike wears. And I'll invest my money in a certain place because that's where Mike invests his money. And I'll do all the things that Mike does. Now I'm like Mike. You kidding me? <laughs> White men can't jump. You know, you, you, you understand you can't be like Mike. <laughs> the only way to be like Michael Jordan is for Michael Jordan to get in you and then be Michael through you. And that's what God did in a Christian life. You can't live like Jesus except you can live in the attitude that he had. He was totally subjected to his father and the father in him did his works and that's the way Paul lived. You didn't see Paul, you saw Christ. He said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And that's the idea of imitation here. And it's the picture of submission. If I live submitted to him, that means that Christ is gonna be glorified in me and that's the starting point for a believer. Before you ever get to talking about a woman's role, or before you ever get to talking about a man's role, you've gotta find, find, find out what a believer's role is and that's to live in absolute submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he in you can be glorified, recognized, properly esteemed through you. So that's the, the portrait of submission that the Apostle Paul begins with. You remember back in chapter seven and verse seven, he made the statement, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. And everybody that does that, every commentator says he means being single. No, more than that. The Apostle Paul lived such a life submitted to Christ as Christ lived to his father that he was all, all that was seen in him was Christ. That was, that was a summation of his focus in life. And what he's saying is if you were living like I'm living, then all these questions you're asking me would fall by the wayside because the most important thing to you would not be marriage or remarriage. The most important thing to you is Christ being glorified in your life. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to show you something. This is the way Paul lived. This is the way Paul lived. A professor in the school where Stephen is going made a statement in class one day. He said, these people who say that Christ is your life and every demand placed on us is in reality a demand placed on himself because he lives in you to enable you to do what you do. He said, that's ridiculous. That's what the professor said. And he read a verse out of 2 Corinthians chapter seven and it troubled my son. Stephen called me on the phone and says, daddy, I've been hearing you preach this all of my life, but for the first time I've heard somebody slamming up against the wall and he gave me the verse out of chapter seven and I said, Stephen, did the professor read anything else out of 2 Corinthians? He says, no. I said, you mean he's a professor at seminary and didn't read anything out of chapter four before he commented on chapter seven? He says, no, sir, he didn't. I said, pick up your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter four, start reading, I'll tell you where to stop. No, I told him, I said, you'll know where to stop. Look at verse, I'm gonna jump in only two of them, verse 10. Paul says, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested, where? Where? In our body, look at verse 11. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to the death for, for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our what? Mortal 
flesh. And the word manifest is the word phanero. Phanero means to be shown openly, to be made visible so that nothing is hidden, apparent to everyone, to be absolutely conspicuous. And what Paul is saying is we live this life of dying to self daily. We're already dead. We mortify the deeds of the flesh. We live in submission to Christ so that the life of Christ in us might be completely conspicuous to everybody and manifest and apparent and visible through our mortal flesh. Wow, that's living the Christ life. That's living as Christ lived because the Father was glorified in the Son. When you live as Christ lived, then as the Father was to Christ, Christ is to us. And the Son is made manifest in us. That's a picture of surrender. That's a picture of submission. That's when it begins to, to have its foundation in all things that we're going to discuss. You begin to appreciate the order that God has. Years ago, I worked for a pastor who's a friend. He's five years younger than me. <laughs> Made a lot more money than I did. Used to just give me a list of things to do every week. On Fridays, I had to call the people I'd visited to find out if they're gonna visit on, or join on Sunday. And on Saturdays, when I'd planned to be doing something else, I had to go back and check them out to see whether or not they were actually gonna join. I mean, you wouldn't believe. As a matter of fact, this is where I learned what not to do as a pastor to my staff. And hopefully, hopefully that's worked over the years. But I, I, can't, I lived under such a rigid person. I couldn't move unless I called and asked for permission. But you know what God continued to do? The more I surrendered to Christ, the more God began to give me the understanding that I need to submit to this man. And Dinah one day told me, she said, you know, Wayne, Something incredible has happened to me. She said, I have learned to appreciate my submitting to you by watching you submit to this pastor that you're submitting to. What, how you're living has communicated to me the appreciation I need to have for the order and the design God has placed within my own life. Now folks, that's what happens. You know what's wrong? We can't even discuss the role of women until first of all we've discussed this. One of the reasons people won't talk to you about it, one of the reasons they have their own opinions, one of the reasons they're trying to push their own program is because they have not yet abandoned everything in surrender to Christ. And until we're surrendered and abandoned, then we don't even understand the design and the order and the function that God has for the rest of us. So he starts with a portrait of submission. He says, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. And hopefully you understand that now. It's not necessarily what they do as much as the way they went about doing it. That submitted attitude. That attitude of surrender. Well, the second thing he gets into is the purpose of submission. Now this is going to take a while and I won't finish it, but we'll get it started. The purpose is to show allegiance to God's will and God's order. You see, when I'm willing to submit and I'm willing to, to the headship of Christ in my life and the woman is willing to submit to the headship of the man as we'll see, all of these things communicate a message to others that we are absolutely, we hold allegiance to what God says. We, we respect and honor his will even beyond our own mental comprehension sometimes of what he asks us to do. And again, before we leap into it, remember that Paul is simply answering questions. There's some things he's gonna leave the door open he can't close and he'll, because he's just answering a question. He's not having a complete exposition on this. He's answering some questions that were evidently written to him 
about the lifestyle and the role of women in the Corinthian church. Here's what you need to realize. In Corinth, women's lib was the thing among the Corinthian women. Can you believe this? It's like reading the newspaper, isn't it? And somebody says, no, it isn't because we came up with it ourselves. And twins said, and the book of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Why is it we think we've come up with something new? Are you kidding me? Same thing was going on back in Corinth. History records that feminism appeared in the Roman Empire during New Testament times. Now you remember, that was the dominant government at that time. The women and the men wore robes, just like uh, we'd see pictures of them today, but they were distinguishable. Not necessarily in the color of the robe, but in the fact that the woman would take that flap on her robe and pull it up over her head, would come down over her brow. The word for covering really means something that hangs down over the head. It's more the idea of a veil than it is actually a covering. It's something that came over the head and would come down at least over the brow. The Christian women would, would especially wear that covering over their head. But when the feminist movement began to move into Corinth, it began to affect the church. And women would often take off their veils that they would wear or other head coverings that distinguished them in their culture. Why would they do that? To make themselves look like men. Now you think we're living in a new day? You think this is something new to the 20th century? When you're walking down the street and somebody passes you and you have to look twice to tell whether or not it's a man or whether or not it's a woman? It's exactly what they wanted back in their culture. They would even shave their heads to look like men. They asserted their independence by leaving their husbands at home and refusing to care for their children. They demanded jobs traditionally held by men and discarded all signs of femininity. Does that sound like today? It does, doesn't it? But this was what was going on in Corinth when Paul wrote this. This caused the church to be disturbed and had many questions because, you see, what started in the secular society had now ended back up in the church. That's so sad, isn't it? It always starts in the secular world, but somehow, if people aren't living surrendered lives, will affect the people in, in God's family. And then they begin to affect us. I've been telling you for a long time, there's a school for mean women somewhere and they train them and send them wherever I pastor. Now, you don't believe that. You just think I'm just being, being funny. I, no, I'm not. If there's a mean woman in Chattanooga, she will join this church, I guarantee you, this year before it's over with. For some reason, I'll tell you what, the meanest people I've ever had to deal with has it's never been the issue that we had to deal with. It's the issue has really been that person's walk with Christ. Is she imitating the life of Christ? Is she living totally surrendered to Christ? Because if she is, then she has a proper respect for the design and the order that God has set up within the family of God. <laughs> it was over in South Africa once. Bill Stafford hung me. He said, Wayne, what is it you call the WMU? The Women's Military Union. Oh, <laughs> well, I haven't said anything. We've just gotten in East London in South Africa and I haven't said a word to anybody. I promise you, I haven't bothered anybody. Walked off the, the plane, got over to the conference. Bill spoke first. They had a, they had a little time between the first two sessions. <laughs> I'm standing over by the cookie table <laughs> eating, oh, they call scones over there, biscuits. I was eating a scone. And I saw her coming. She had that little bun on the back of her head. Had a little ring in her husband's nose with a leash on it, pulling him right by the line. <laughs> Steam coming out her ears. She walked up to me and she said, young man. And I knew exactly, <laughs> I have the gift of discernment. Oh, I knew exactly what she was about to do. And I said, yes, yes, ma'am. <laughs> when in doubt, be very nice. She said, I don't think that's funny at all. <laughs> My dad, bless his heart, before he went on to be with the Lord, told me, he said, Wayne, if you ever get caught, plead ignorance. They can't burn you if you're ignorant. I said, what? 
<laughs> I knew exactly what you're talking about. She said, that comment Bill said you made about the women's military. Listen, she was the head of the WMU for South Africa. How do they find me? How did she get to this conference? I'm telling you, they know where I am. There's a radar that they have and they find me. And I said, ma'am, I'm so sorry that Bill said that and I didn't mean to offend you in any way. Hopefully you didn't. But he said, I said, I just want to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't know if I need to tell you what I said or not. <laughs> I said, the meanest white women I've ever known in <laughs> every church I've ever served. And her husband was standing behind her grinning from ear to ear. You know why you can't deal with this issue and why, why women particular now, hey, we're on women right now. We'll get to the men when it's time. Why women won't hear you? Because it all has to do with their absolute total surrender and abandonment to Christ. If flesh is alive, it's gonna respond. That's why you can't deal with it. That's why you just bring it up. You can say something and people just walk away mad at you because you said something that sounded derogatory towards themselves. Now listen, Paul is telling them, deal with it, deal with it. The first thing he does is compliments them. He says in verse two, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. The Corinthians were doing everything, most of the things upside down, but at least they had some good orthodoxy. They had some great truth and Paul had taught them they had not forgotten this. And it appears from what he says is, that, that they want and they respect what Paul says. And so that's why they're asking him these questions. And Paul says, you remember me in everything. The word everything apparently ties itself to the traditions that he's, that he's speaking of here. And the word tradition is the word paradosis. It comes to the word parathidomy to give over to somebody. It has to do with the teachings. So Paul is saying, you remember the things that I have taught you. In fact, the word parathidomy to give over to someone is the next phrase. He says, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. That's the actual phrase. I gave them over to you. Paul says you hold firmly to these teachings. Now, the King James Version simply says you keep these ordinances, but the New American Standard says you hold firmly to, and that's a better translation. The Greek word is kateko, to hold fast to something, to re retain something. It's used in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, when he says, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good. You see, the Corinthians still remembered the teachings of Paul, but they didn't understand those teachings. You know, that's an interesting thought to me. How many things do you remember that's been taught at Woodland Park? You even have it in your Bible. You have the outline, the date when it was preached, but you don't have any understanding of that which you remember. Because Paul goes on in verse three, it says, but I want you to understand. He contrasts a contrasting word there, but I want you to understand. The word understand there is the word edo, E-I-D-O, transliterated. And it comes from the word horao, which means to see it, to be able to fully perceive it and to understand it. I don't want you to just remember it. I want you to fully understand the things that I have taught you. Well, what is it that Paul wanted these Corinthians to understand? Well, evidently it had something to do, had everything to do with submitting, living your life submissive to Christ and the order that God has given. Evidently they remembered the things he had taught but hadn't been able to put it together. They didn't understand that submission to Christ establishes the base for all submission, no matter what arena it's in. First of all, he gives the example of the fact that every man should be submissive to Christ. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. 
Now the head of, the word head is kephali, which means head. But in, in when it's used metaphorically with relationships here and, and people, it means the chief. Uh, the one to whom others are subordinate to. That's where your word submission comes into play. The ones you submit to, the ones you obey. The one who's in, in the, the head of a company is the one everybody obeys. The head of, of a whatever is the one everybody obeys. So that's what he means it in a metaphorical sense there. Well, the term from man is interesting. It's not the generic term of mankind, which would be anthropos. It's the word anir. And anir is the, the word for male, the actual man. That's interesting to me. He, he immediately narrows himself to the point he's about to make, and he starts with the men. Is Jesus the head of all men? Absolutely. He says that every, every creation will bow before him and, and confess him as Lord someday. Yes, but that's not his context. The context is he's got something else to say. So he narrows it in, and he speaks to all the men that are listening to him, and he says Christ is the head of every man. Now, implicit in this is the believer and the union the believer has to Christ by faith. You see, once a, a person, a man, puts his faith into Christ, he now is in a relationship to him, and in every relationship there has to be a head. By faith he's in union with Christ, but Christ has to be the head. He becomes a part of a body which has many members, but everybody has to have a head, and the head is Christ. And so that's where it starts, every man, his head is Christ. Secondly, he switches, I think, to the husband. For the word man, anir, is also the same word for husband. But the implication here, since there's a union with this man in Christ, and Christ is his head there as a result, now there has to be a union between this man and a woman. And therefore, a relationship has been formed and somebody has to be the head. He shifts gears. He says in verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of of a woman. In other words, now that they're, they're, they're united by marriage, and when you're united by marriage, you become one body. Look over in Matthew chapter 19 and verse six. I just wanna make sure you see this. A body has to have a head, has to have someone to lead it, where the, where the thoughts are originated and where then the body complies with it. They're one body, that body has to have a head. Matthew 19 and verse six. Matthew 19 and verse six. He says, consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That's repeated again in Mark chapter 10 and verse eight. You might want to jot that down. But then in Ephesians 5, 23, look over there. Here comes the, the essence of this thing. Now that they're united and become one flesh, there is a relationship here between the man and the woman. They're one body, they have to have a head. It says in chapter five, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. Has to be. And, and the, the example he gives is as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So you have two pictures here of submission. And this is his whole point that he's gonna be bringing out. Every man has got to learn that Christ is his covering because of a union by faith. Is Christ the head of a woman? Certainly, but that's not his point right here. Then he says, the husband, however, has to learn he's the covering for the wife. And the wife has to learn that. And therefore, everybody has to have a head. And then he gives a third example. It's a beautiful example. He says in the last part of verse three, and God is the head 
of Christ. Now I can just see the Jehovah's Witnesses right now jumping up and down saying, you see, you see, you see, you see, I told you. God's the head of Christ. You see, you see, you see. Christ is inferior to God. And all I want to say to them is, the definite article, listen to me, Jehovah's Witnesses, and hear what I'm saying. The definite article is used before God. And when God and Christ are in the same verse and the definite article is before God, it is God the Father. It's Christ the Son. And we know very well from Scripture, he emptied himself of his glory and his right to use his power for his own benefit. And he came to this earth and by choice, in this new union of the God-man and the Father, by choice, the Father becomes the head and the Son becomes the one who responds to the head. Isn't it amazing how Christ starts it, Christ finishes it. Anytime you have trouble with God's order, go back to Christ. Because there's a union. As a result of that union, there has to be a head and one to submit to that head. And he gives you three beautiful examples. And evidently he had taught them this, but they did not have comprehension of what he was saying. And if they had have understood it, they wouldn't have been asking him some of the questions about the role of the women there in the church of Corinth. Now, why would he say these things? Why is he so emphatic? Gives you the understanding, something's going on in Corinth. Uh, the world has gotten into that church. And those women, I bet you, have been taking those coverings off, acting like the men, disregarding the order that God had given, and that's the problem. Now, there's two things running side by side here, and if you don't see them, you're gonna get confused in chapter 11. One is culture. Culture is different in Corinth than it is in Chattanooga. The other is an eternal truth and principle, and they're running side by side. You've got to be able to separate the two. We won't do it all this morning. I'm so frustrated because I know where I'm headed, but I can't get there today. So you're gonna to have to get ahead of it. Oh, the way he ends this thing is so simple. It's as clear as a, the nose on your face. But right now it's gonna be a little confusing. One is the cultural. Now the cultural concerns the way the people would dress in that time. Uh, like I said, the believing man would never wear a covering over his head when it, when it came to praying in public or prophesying. Just like the believing woman would, would never fail to wear a covering, a veil. Uh, because her husband was her covering, her head. This was a cultural trait. This is the way the believers set themselves apart from the unbelievers. You'll see that in a moment. Over in Romania, even to this day, it's that way. Prostitution was so bad, even under, under Ceausescu, that the Christian believing women would wear those coverings over their head and they, to separate themselves from the people that wore the makeup were the prostitutes of Romania. And so therefore they tried to separate themselves. It becomes a, a something of a, of, of a necessity because of society and the paganism that's around us to make sure that there's a difference here in the way that we look. And that was a cultural thing. He says in verse four, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now in that culture, if a man put a veil over his head, a covering and then a veil, then he would disgrace himself. Why? Because he's supposed to be the head of his wife and Christ is his head, and he's put another covering over that. That disgraces that man. Praying involves saying things to God. Prophesying involves saying things that God has said to you to others. And he's not talking about in church or anything else. It's just a principle he's bringing up here. But look at the reverse of that in verse five. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. So it's the exact reverse of the man. For she is one and the same with her, now watch this, whose head is shaved. Man, the culture is so clear. And what Paul is saying in Corinth, 
by necessity. A man does not put a covering over his head when he prays or prophesies, and a woman does because there's a difference in roles, and Christ is the head of the man. The, the man is the head or the covering for the woman. And symbolically, and in that culture, it made a statement. Now, careful. Paul shows how a woman disgraces herself by taking the covering off her head. Look at the last part of that verse. I read it kind of fast. Go back and read it. For she is one. Now she takes that covering off. She is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. Now you need to know their culture. You need to know, remember that, that uh, great Acropolis, that big rock mountain that overlooked Corinth? On the top of that was the temple of Venus or the temple of Aphrodite. And that was where all the, the priestesses were, 1,000 of them. Were they priestesses? No, they were prostitutes. And those prostitutes shaved their heads and would come into the city at night with shoes on or sandals that would have on the bottom of them, follow me. And people followed them and all the garbage that took place as a result of it. So he says, if you're gonna come in and this culture and uncover your head, you are identifying with that prostitute over there that you don't even know Christ and that you're an immoral woman. The second person that wore, that shaved their head was an adulteress. A woman accused of adultery had to shave their head by the law that comes out of the Old Testament. And then thirdly, the poor slave was one who many times had to have her head shaved. And Paul says, women, you disgrace yourself. If you're in this culture, when you come in looking so much like the world and, and the immoral world at that time, he says, you're identifying yourself with them and you disgrace yourself. He disgraced, you disgraced your head. Now, the next verse says essentially the same thing, verse six. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also cut, have her hair cut off. In other words, if, if you're not gonna cover your head, go on, shave your head. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then let her cover her head. And I hope you're following with him. It's just as clear to me as anything. Then he begins to balance the equation. Now, he doesn't want anybody to start thinking that a woman is any less than a man. No, 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 no. When it comes to submission, man being the head, that's an order that God has set up, but it has nothing to do with the quality of that woman's life and the dignity of that woman. Do you realize that until the church, the gospel reached that area of the world, that women were absolutely nothing? That the gospel elevated women to a position, and I hear people say the things about what the church says about submission, and that puts a woman down, and sometimes I'm just so grateful I can't say anything because it's in the newspaper or on the television set, but I just want to throw a brick right through that screen and say, what in the world are you talking about? Had it not been for Christ, you would have never had a position. Christ elevated you and gave great integrity to who you are. You see, but the, and he's gonna bring this out. Any man that would degrade a woman, in fact, ends up degrading himself. This is a beautiful thing he does here. Look at verse seven. <laughs> yeah, I love it. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Now, what in the world does he mean he's the image and the glory of God? Well, the word image there, icon, you've heard the word icon. We think it's something that resembles something else. No, 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 no. In the Greek understanding, it's more than that. It requires a prototype. In other words, it's not that which it merely resembles, but it's that from which it comes, from which it's drawn. Man was made by God. Without God, there would be no man. So when you look at man, you're seeing the glory of God. 
God made the man. The man came out of God. God was the one who created him. So man, for God to degrade man would be to degrade himself. He made man. And in the same way, Paul says, but the woman is the glory of man. Without man, there'd be no woman. She was taken out of man. Look at verse eight. For man does not originate from woman. Now, when you first read this, if you didn't know scripture, it could put context together. <laughs> would this be confusing? Now, I had a mama. I really did. I want you to know that. Put that in a Chattanooga Free Press. Wayne Barber was born out of a woman. <laughs> I came from a woman. I was born of my mama. I wasn't left in a basket in the front doorstep. I have a mama. She's in heaven today. <laughs> but you see, when you read that, you think, what's he saying? Well, the key is the word originate. Where'd the first man come from? Remember that debate? Did Adam ever have a belly button? Did you ever go through that thing? I'm sorry. I don't know if that offended anybody. But where did he originate from? <laughs> the key words originate. Look at verse 22, Genesis 2. And the Lord God fashioned a woman into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. So for a man to degrade a woman is to turn right around and degrade himself. For the woman originated out of man. Just like if God degraded man, he would degrade himself because man was created by God. Now look what he says in verse nine and 10. I've got to get out of here, time's up. He says, verse nine, for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake. And this is very obvious in Genesis. But woman for the man's sake. Now that is unless you believe the idiots who say that this is not God's inspired word. And I don't even have patience for it anymore. And the older I get, the less patience I'm getting. God said it, that ought to settle it. God created man, and out of man came woman. This is his whole argument. He says in verse 10, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Stephen called me about a week or so ago. He said, Dad, I got one for you. I said, what's that? He said, over in 1 Corinthians 11, aren't you in 1 Corinthians? I said, yeah, but I'm not there yet. He said, why should the woman be submissive to the man? Because of the angels. Have I wrestled with that since he called me and didn't realize it's coming up in this message? I think I got an answer. I really do. <laughs> Any man who says he understands a woman would lie about anything. Well, <laughs> listen to listen to me. Listen, now, now you women just got offended by that. Why'd you do that? If you're dead, you can't get offended. <laughs> anyway, there are no female angels. Oops. But what is an angel's first response to God? Is to submit to the will of God. And the ones who didn't are the demonic angels and the Satan himself, that's the fallen ones. But the angel lives in total submission. He understands a man living in total submission. But when he watches, remember they don't understand redemption. They're here this morning, hey guys. You can't see them. But when they see a woman not willing to submit to a man, that's a reproach to everything they understand about redemption. The order of God has been turned upside down. Who had the audacity to do something like that? Because of the angels, a woman should submit to a man. Well, there's a whole lot more to that. And we're gonna go further. I just hope that you'll stay with me because I really believe this is a message for all of us in these days, but I, I, I don't want you to miss verse one. Whatever we agree or disagree in 1 Corinthians 11, and certainly we're free to do that. I'm not the authority. The Word of God's the authority, and sometimes I make mistakes, but I want to tell you something. Verse 1 is your key. No matter how you want to argue the role of a woman, you better go back to verse 1, and he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
live in such a submission to him that Christ now can live his life through you. And when you live that dead to self, you won't have any trouble with the order and function God has given in the designs of husband, wife, or in any other area of submission. God set it up and that's okay because you're already submitted to him. You have a perspective now towards these things that you didn't have before. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.